Welcome to The Math of You, a podcast about formative media from when we were young. I'm Lucas Brown. On this, our 86th episode, I'll be talking to Stephen Gawain, a real-life undertaker, about vintage video games. Along the way, we discuss the secret kayfabe of shoot undertaking, the existential horror of Boo the Ghost, and pushing through terror to fall in love with Bruce Campbell's big dumb face. We'll finish the show with our signature cocktail and let you know how you can become a guest on The Math of You. We join this conversation already in progress. So for those who may not know you, why don't you say who you are and what makes you a beautiful and unique snowflake? <laughs> you know, I, I've listened to the show before, and I know that that question was coming, and I was so worried, because I don't know if there's anything that makes me particularly unique or special. That is a fun thing. Put it this way, I like to think of it as, it's kind of like someone being called strong style in Japan, where it's like, you can't call yourself strong style, you have to just do stuff. And have other people go, yeah, that guy's fucking strong style as hell. All right. People have noted that I can put all of my emotions just aside for a moment and handle the situation. Not in an unhealthy, repress yourself way, but just if I don't need to crack or break, I can just be stone. My favorite Monty Python growing up was Graham Chapman, who always played the straight man, mm-hmm. ironically. <laughs> he killed me anytime he was on screen that like nothing around him was going on. Oh, I should probably mention I work in the funeral business. That is my career. All right. I work as an undertaker, and I love my job. It's very rewarding in its own way, and it's a task that I feel like I was built for. And I learned this about 10 months ago when I started. So, okay, I have to be the one to ask, and I'm sure you've gotten this question a lot. Mm-hmm. Was there just an ad in the paper, and you sort of shrugged and went, could be fun? In the internal paper of my mindscape, yeah. I had worked for construction for a couple years. I went to community college straight out of high school. And didn't know what I wanted to do. I was spin tires. I literally could not pay to go to community college and have a job at the same time. So I just said, screw school. I'm going to go do construction. Just try and get money. That was starting to get spin tires as well. And that was a pretty bad scene mentally. And then I was thinking about, what do I like? What do I want to do? Steven, please don't tell me that you said, what do I like? And the words dead people came to mind. <laughs> I'm... That didn't happen. (laughs) Good. Okay. Right. So you were saying. I was listening in my head, what do I like? And I was like, well, I like church organ music, despite not being a religious person myself. I just kind of like the sound of it. That big cathedral sound. Fair. Good. Yep. I Mm -hmm. like wearing black all the time. Yep. All right. I've always been interested and kind of fascinated with anatomy and physiology. Okay, with you so far. And I have just kind of a resting frown. Whether or not I'm in a good mood, I just kind of have a ghastly air about me. And then it all just kind of added up of like, oh, I'll be a mortician. That sounds right. And lo and behold, it clicked. See, you mentioned before that you were built for this. and You have just like listed four traits. And I went, yeah, stands to reason. Yeah, pretty much. I have been able to go back to a specialty college for undertakers to become a fully licensed funeral director. 
the other students at the college who I'm one of the younger ones at 23 years old. The age range is anywhere from 20 to like 40 because you have to take the uh, school course and get your associate's degree to take the test to become a licensed funeral director, which is by federal level, not a school thing for whatever reason. So like some of the kids there will be saying things like, oh, I went to my grandmother's funeral, my mother's funeral when I was a child, and it was a business that has always been very close to me. Or other people were just born into the business of, oh, my parents did this and their grandparents did this, so now I'm going to do this. Death runs in my family. Yeah. <laughs> Which, if you come to think of it, death runs in every family, otherwise everyone would be around all the time. Yeah, it would get crowded fast, I tell you what. <laughs> it's like that terrible Robert Rankin joke where it's like, oh yes, the population of Earth is shrinking because everyone had two parents, and each of them had two parents, and everyone else had two parents. <laughs> so really, if you think about it, in the past there were twice as many people as there were right now. <laughs> it's that stupid kind of logic. Uh, the perfect world where <laughs> incest doesn't exist. Exactly. <laughs> Oh, dear. We're off topic. But so in your job as a funeral director, and this is a niche joke, I appreciate that. At what point do you reach the level where you can, you know, hold a vulture on your mitt or call lightning from the skies or do any of the other powers that the wrestling undertaker has? Would you believe I have a genuine difficulty when a patron comes in to the funeral home? Uh How much effort it takes me to not just go, oh, dear, I'm so sorry for your loss. (laughs) Unexpected Paul Bearer voice there. <laughs> you... Oh god, I'm dying. <laughs> Even crazier is how accurate the original, like, New Generation era promos of The Undertaker forging a coffin or mixing his own embalming fluid or even digging the grave. That was all stuff old Undertakers of, like, yore had to do. Like, they were called furnishing Undertakers. And I bet they researched that shit. You know, they kayfabe the shit out of that. It's like, you know, it has to be real. You have to go and learn how to do this thing. (laughs) Or it's like, it has to be real. You have to go and do this thing. (laughs) Oh, yes. Uh, Oh, God, it's going to be so annoying for the people listening. I I apologize, but the polar voice is infectious. Uh, It's so good. It's such a fun voice to do. Oh, oh, God, I have tears in my eyes. Oh, <laughs> oh I'm sorry uh. if we peaked early. <laughs> oh, we must have. Uh, also, special shout-out to the, uh, the WWF Action Comics, the only one of which I ever found at a gas station, which implied that both Paul Bearer and The Undertaker were cannibals, because at one point they were in a funeral for a guy named Charles, and the joke that they went out on is Paul Bearer saying, you should stay for lunch, we're having ground chuck. <laughs> Boo this man. (laughs) And what was the worst is that that's not an expression that's really known in Canada. So I had to ask my dad what it meant. It's like, oh, it means like hamburger. And I'm like, but it's also the guy's name. (laughs) Yeah, it's a joke. That's terrible. Oh, dear. I love the dad humor of old, old wrestling. Oh, God. I will never not love it. It's amazing. I really could talk about funerals all day. And any questions and curiosities you have, you don't hesitate to holler at your boy here. But <laughs> <laughs> No, it's, it's super interesting. I'm, I think, forget who it was. It was what, what someone I've had brought on previously where I talked about one of the uh, the Science of Death exhibits at the Australian Museum. Oh, yes, I think it was um, Kit Mulcairn. Because there was this very interesting exhibit called the Science of Death at the Australian Museum where it was just going through all of various funeral rites going back into antiquity and then had a near-working reproduction of a modern funeral parlor and what's involved and i actually it's really interesting (laughs) so there you go 
Yeah. Now, oh, one more thing. This is more of a social thing about Undertakers is there's so much in common with real life shoot undertaking and wrestling. <laughs> okay. Specifically, keeping kayfabe alive. Oh. You cannot tell a family what we do in the prep room because it will make their skin crawl because that's their loved one. And that's cool. But the secrecy has kind of started to come out in these recent years. If you go back to the 60s and 70s and even the 80s, they're so secretive. And, like, even breaking into the business, you have to know somebody. Which is still true now. Like, I only got the job I do because I moved back into my dad's house. Well, I moved back into his garage. Important distinction. And he was a firefighter EMT, and he's a regular townie. So I had a name to me that I was able to get into, and I'm very fortunate to have that. You Bob's boy kind of thing? My grandfather was the fire chief of this town. And uh-huh. his name is Bob. So I. <laughs> From a long line of Bobs. <laughs> Yay, though his name is Bob. And he just, just prescribed the earth like a mighty colossus. And all shall know the name of Bob. <laughs> oh, lordy. All right. So, Stephen, whereabouts did you grow up? Massachusetts. And I mean, like, just throughout the state. We started in the suburbs just south of Boston. My parents got divorced when I was very, very young. Which is the best thing that could ever happen to me, by the way. Don't ever feel bad for someone who's divorced. Because it's awesome. If people who hate each other stay together, the kids suffer. <laughs> Sorry, that got a little real. <laughs> nice. That's true. And my mom moved out to the other half of the state. Massachusetts is a very, very tiny, tiny state. But it is split basically down the middle of urban and rural. The dividing line being Worcester, if you want to look at a map. And on the rural side, like, my graduating high school class between nine towns had 80 kids. There are towns that have a population of 700, I believe it was. The town I lived in was about seven to 10,000, somewhere in there. And my dad had always stayed in the suburbs and, like, small, small, what you would call cities, but aren't, like, actual city cities. And I would go in and out of Boston all the time anytime I'd visit him. So I have a very weird worldview of I treat everything with the small town politeness and benefit of the doubt of the rural area but i'm always looking over the back of my shoulder in the concrete jungle sort of way so i'm like always holding the door for somebody but i'm always like checking them out like are they carrying something because i can see the (laughs) i've been (laughs) because i can see certain outlines of certain things Surprising amount of gun nuts in Massachusetts. You wouldn't expect that. Good figure. America's America. I think there is something to that, though, because I was mostly a city kid, mm-hmm. or at least a small city kid when I was growing up. And then later, when I was in like my early teens, I spent some time in small towns. And I think that contrast gives you a little bit of perspective. Mm-hmm. You know, like I have some friends who started in small towns, grew up in small towns, and then came to the city later. And I think that's, like, if you look at how that's kind of affected their personalities and how they kind of developed, it's very different to those who grew up in cities and then those who switch from one to the other. Yeah, get a bit more perspective on that sort of thing. It's also interesting seeing how what people think of as cool. <laughs> in the city, the cool things are the cool things that everybody already knows. But in, a, in fucking Massachusetts, <laughs> in the absolute boonies... In the fucking woods where my friend would have, like, bears on his porch. And we were like, oh, we can't go outside right now. Or go out in the backyard and fire a gun a few times to get them to run away. People have Confederate flags on their trucks. On their raised muddy trucks. What? Right? In Massachusetts. We're, we're the opposite of the South. <laughs> there are four states higher than us. And Alaska doesn't count because it didn't exist yet. <laughs> so, yeah, that's one kind of perspective, I suppose. <laughs> <laughs> oh, dear. 
so anyways, as a uh, young kid, young, 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 when my parents first split up, my mom had to move back into her parents' house before she could get some capital to get her own place. Lots of people, not everyone, lots of people love their mom, and they think their mom is the greatest person ever. My mom, like, actually is, though, because she was by herself with three kids as a waitress and somehow also going to school, and she was still the, like, the sweetest person ever. Between, like, waitress jobs, she would also do, like, heavy work. Like, she used to build stone walls. And she uh, would, uh... Okay. <laughs> and she would, do, would uh, do slate roofing with her now partner, now husband. So, like, my mom's a brick shit house, <laughs> But she's also a massage therapist and a yoga teacher. All right. So she's absolutely great. She also hates video games, which we'll come back to later. <laughs> <laughs> wow. My dad, on the other hand, is just like a regular working class guy. He was a firefighting EMT for a whole bunch of years. And him being casually into video games allowed us to have way more than I think we should have. Because everyone has more money than they think they do, especially when they get a hobby. And my dad (laughs) kind of fell into video games a little bit. Which is weird because my dad also hates escapism and fantasy. I had to tell him what a centaur was because he had no clue. And I told him what it was, and he's like, I hate fantasy. Why not just be in reality? And then I... I Admittedly, the idea of a centaur is categorically stupid. Oh, yes. But... Centaurs specifically suck, but I think that's besides the point. <laughs> there was a recent joke on Xena Warrior Business where they're like, okay, the kid of an Amazon and a centaur should technically be a quarter horse. Yeah. That's bullshit. <laughs> like, it's just the image of that is just like, like you start to think, which quarter? Just, just the back legs or... Like, one leg, or... I think the greatest picture on the internet to date is the legendary Mantar. The centaur that is half man and half also a man. And there's, like, a, <laughs> and there's like somebody who would be running on all fours, and out of their neck is the centaur body that's looking all, like, sleek and elven and has the bow. <laughs> oh, that's awful. Uh, it's up there with the idea that, oh, yeah, at three weeks old, a horse is a lot more yeah. capable than a human baby. <laughs> Oh my god. It's just uh, the worst. So anyways. So your dad hated fantasy. We were coming back to that. No, that was just it. He just does. So the games we would have at my mom's, before she was living on her own, in the brief period when she was living with her parents, and her younger brother, who was significantly younger, it was still like a, quotes acceptable time for him to be living with, with his parents in the late 90s here, early 2000s. One of the consoles he had as a kid was a Sega Genesis. Which I was not allowed to play unless I was sick, in which case I was curling up with some Sonic the Hedgehog. (laughs) He also had, like, the Sega six-pack and Mortal Kombat, which I was not allowed to touch, because Mortal Kombat was too violent. He still owned it, but just you weren't allowed to touch it. Yeah, well, he was allowed to play it, (laughs) but (laughs) but I couldn't because I was the wee baby. I'm also the youngest of three siblings, so I'm extra delicate. But I was able to, like, sneak in some Streets of Rage here and some Golden Axe, which I, I had no clue what a utopian urban area where women are wearing corsets and nothing else and attacking with whips. I didn't know what a suplex was. I didn't know. You just find, like, a roast chicken <laughs> in a garbage can. Oh, yeah, the barrel meat. It's good stuff. <laughs> what my uncle also had. My uncle's also a computer whiz. It's just something he loved. He had an old laptop that was a 98 Windows I don't know if it was Windows XP or if it was Windows NM. I don't remember what operating system it had. But he gave that to my mom so that myself, my brother, and my sister could have a laptop and learn how to type and become familiarized with technology because he foresaw technology's going to take over the world as it tends to do. And on that laptop, 
was not only solitaire with the spooky card backs, <laughs> but the entirety of Wolfenstein 3D. Oh boy. So I did a lot of Nazi shooting as a child, and I think I am better for it in adulthood. Sitting in the dark with the light flickering across your face as you hear, <laughs> Hitting the use key on all the walls, just until the door opens, and then there's just this piercing chip tune because sound didn't exist properly yet. You had to install Sound Blaster Plus. Mm -hmm. The pressing use on everything, I think it's something that I didn't realize that other people did too, and... (laughs) And I get putting my old man hat back on. Kids these days don't realize that it's like if you thought you were stuck in a level, you figured you had missed something. So you would go back to every fake console on the wall, (sighs) everything that could look like it could be a button. What if I shoot every plant? Maybe it'll open a door. Hey, Dale! Hey, Dale! All these doors are fucking painted on! (laughs) It's not working! And then you realize, oh yeah, I missed a turn back there, and here's the rest of the level, because there are enemies here. Not everyone is dead. Yeah, Wolfenstein was literally mazes. It was just a maze. Yeah. Full of Nazis that you would shoot. And you could keep (laughs) track of where you were, of like, okay, there's a Nazi body, so I've been here. (laughs) A maze full of Nazis. Aren't we describing Twitter.com? Oh, fuck, we are. (laughs) But the thing is, no. Here, I'll put it in terms that kids today can understand. It's like turning a corner in Skyrim. And noticing that all the corpses are naked and have nothing in their inventory. <laughs> and realizing, oh yeah, I have been here. <laughs> uh, what a great landmarker. Yep. <laughs> oh, one more game I had on the PC at this time. Or I didn't have it, my uncle had it. I would sit on his knee and he would play Mist, And I was absolutely... Oh, yes. ...taken by Mist. Of It was so gorgeous at the time. It had this, like, eerie wrongness to it in the voice acting. Mm. Man, that game responsible for a whole lot of bullshit in video games. <laughs> I'm glad that sentence took the turn where it did, because I have some opinions about yeah, this. Yeah, because Mist, for those who don't know, a man fell into a book Blue Skidoo style, and he's in this surrealist tinkerer's world, so all of the puzzles on how to navigate are really obtuse and roundabout, and it makes sense in kayfabe. Nowadays, not even nowadays, just from then forward, video games have dumb, bullshit, unintuitive puzzles. And I have some specifics that we'll get to later in my video game playing years. Here's the thing, though. All of that is fine. Mm-hmm. Here is my problem. I started Mist having no fucking idea what kind of game Mist was. Yeah. And it tells you nothing. You are dropped into this 3D world that is very cool looking and very interesting. And, you know, there are platforms that are floating. There are levers. But here's the thing. At first, you could, like you can move stuff, but it doesn't do anything. Like, you can be like, all right, I can move this lever, and then that platform, and I can press this blue thing, but then, oh, nothing happened. Maybe, oh, no, what if I press that lever? Oh, that opens a door, but I follow it through, but it doesn't go anywhere. Yeah. Hmm. Oh, here's a book. I thought, oh, I found a page. That page has to go in the book, and then the ink changes color? <laughs> Sitting there at my mom's house, because, again, I had divorced parents, so we would go to my mom's for one month in the summer. And the two games she had, because they came with her computer were Caesar 2 and Mist. And after I beat Caesar 2 and the words plebs are needed will <laughs> echo in my head for the rest of my life. And I learned that you, you, know, you can only develop a neighborhood so far if you build it right next to a factory. Lol joke about classism. Mm-hmm. Then started to play Mist. And I would sit there for hours just being like, this isn't doing anything. Like, you feel like you have progress, but then no. It's, ah, I, it makes me angry. Yeah. So that was on my mom's side. My dad, in 1997, so I was three years old, he bought, and I think my parents were still together, I think they got divorced in 98 or 99. 
he bought a PS1 for himself and my older brother, who was three years older than me. So he's eight. And they would play Crash Bandicoot together. That was a mainstay that I would eventually play when I got to be a toddler. I don't know if he or it was one of his friends, one of his fire buddies, who we actually ended up living in a uh, camper in his backyard when times were really tough. And we would go into his house and like play Twisted Metal and the first 10 minutes of Metal Gear Solid and all of the like edgy, violent games that the PS1 was known for in the West. The thing that turned gaming from the imaginative and colorful Nintendo 80s into the dude bro sport and shooting games that we know today. Yeah. So we had a bit of those. We had like Spyro and there was Croc, which was... I think I remember Croc. Croc was dollar store bid knockoff Spyro and Crash Bandicoot. It was like the Bubsy of the PlayStation 1. <laughs> Except it was pretty cute. So, you know, I can't begrudge it for that because it was a very adorable high-pitched crocodile. <laughs> and you would rescue these little, like, puffballs that I thought were, uh, like, the soot sprites from Spirited Away. But in retrospect, are more like the Karibos from Yu-Gi-Oh. I don't like anime, by the way. <laughs> When I say that, I mean I like two anime and by de facto a third. I like Fist of the North Star and Sailor Moon. And you add those two together and I like JoJo's Bizarre Adventure. So that's about it. (laughs) And then, you know, just the stuff that was on as a kid that I like because it's well-made stuff like Ghibli and that sort of thing. Ghost of the Shell and all the ones that everyone names. So you like friendship, long rambling stories, and punching people so hard they explode. That's my favorite things. <laughs> so one of my hobbies that I kind of developed in childhood and was able to get a hold on and really learn about and learn about myself through was fighting. I love the art of fighting. That's a video game that I didn't mean I was to just, I was just about to say. I'm like, <laughs> that was not on purpose. Should I say something? I didn't want to interrupt. <laughs> but yes, please. I love it. I love sparring with people. I love losing because every time you lose in a fight, you learn something more. And you learn more about how you act in a situation. And you learn more about technique and everything. My dream is to become a white bolo young. <laughs> That's a bold statement. Dream is the key word there. It's never happening. That's why it's a dream. <laughs> Just got to really work those pecs and perfect your snot rockets and have disdain <laughs> for everything. Kick the asses and then have your asses kicked of several generations of action stars. <laughs> I watched Bloodfight the other day. He's bigger in that <laughs> than he is in Bloodsport. Also in oh Bloodfight, he plays a character named Chang Li instead of Chong Li, and they spell it L-E-E instead of L-I. It's, <laughs> it's perfect. But anyway. Similar but legally distinct. Yeah. Considering the I mean, thing is called yeah. Bloodfight instead of Bloodsport, it makes perfect sense that they would have Cheng Li instead of Chong Li. It's also Hong Kong cinema, so like knockoffs are dime a dozen. Yeah. No shade. I love Chinese knockoffs. It's like when you find out there was a Bollywood remake of Powder. Of what? of the movie powder with joe william scott about the, oh, yeah. the bald kid who could control lightning and heal people mm-hmm. uh, foreign films are great wait did i just say sean william scott sean patrick flannery god damn it sean william scott was not in that movie <laughs> stifler from american pie was not in powder you know what's weird i knew who you meant i immediately went oh the guy from boondock saints <laughs> exactly yeah now i'm imagining powder just with like the kid who played stifler and i do not like it nope uh. anyway coming back to the art of fighting Yeah, so I respect pacifism. I would say I'm a pacifist myself. And by that, I mean I don't go seeking for a fight on the street. Fighting is a lot like a sexual encounter. It's only fun if both people are into it, or however many people there may be. If anyone's not enjoying themselves, it's not fun. Consent is very important in fighting. It is so important. Believe it or not, aftercare is important in fighting. Yeah. 
And you wouldn't believe the look on one of my teacher's face in a Muay Thai class where I was like debriefing with someone and they seemed a little out of their element and I calmed them down and like made it a bit more uh, comfortable situation for them. That makes perfect sense. I'm trying to think which time do we go back to video games because I could talk about martial arts for the rest of my life. So This was going somewhere. Okay. So the one thing, you know, Lucas? Yep. Mr. Brown? Yes. Do you know what I love more than real fighting? What trumps real fighting so hard? I'm going to go out of the limb and say digital fighting. It's fake fighting. Ah. Fake fighting is unbeatable. <laughs> uh, Go on. So I eventually got a Genesis of my own thanks to yard sales. I was able to get one for like five bucks. Uh, bless the yard sale. Uh, they make the world go around. Us poor kids. Mm. I gotten so many cassette tapes, DVDs, VHS tapes. There's a annual yard sale from this one dude in this tiny town in Western Mass. And he's some kind of like a psychotic hoarder who like... I can only describe as he hustles, what are those things called? The huge, huge yard sales that everyone does. Flea markets. Flea markets. He hustles flea markets. So he has a three-day-long yard sale that takes up like half an acre or more. Wow. And there's everything there. There's like antique scythes, record players, (laughs) rowing machines, farming equipment. I was able to get the entire box set of The Addams Family on VHS tape for a dollar. Wow. Ugh. (laughs) Oh, I love it. But anyways. You just reminded me, if I can do a slight tangent. Yeah, go ahead. The only thing better than a yard sale to me is the situations where someone's moving and they just put a whole bunch of stuff they don't want out by the sidewalk. Mm -hmm. Because that is just like a treasure trove to me. Oh, yeah. Even if I don't take anything, I get to look and be like, all right, this is what this person was into, let's say, 10 years ago. And there was a particular guy who used to live one street over from Alice Street, for people who know Sydney. And I would be walking down that street from the train station, and I swear, like you said, like he must have just like bought estate sales or like you know bulk lots from flea markets or something because there would always be at least once a week a pile of random crap just outside his house with a sign saying free to take. And I think he must have been, like, a collector of something and would just often get a ton of other junk in the process. Mm-hmm. Because as someone who was coming off a divorce and re-outfitting an apartment... Oh, I'm sorry to hear that. It was invaluable how... No, it was long in the past. And, like oh. you were saying about divorce, was one of those ones that probably needed to happen. I was outfitting an apartment, and I found so many dishes, glassware, books, just, like, things in good shape that it was just like, yeah, I'm going to take this, I'm going to clean it up, and I'm going to use it. I still have some of that stuff. Like, I found a full set of, like, what I can only think of as, like, little grandma crystal dishes. Like, the kind of things you serve, like, olives or candies in. That I still use at parties. That was just, like, out. And I'm like, really? I, I can just have this? This is for me? So, yeah. When you said, you know, a mile-long flea market from a psychotic hoarder, I, like, my heart leapt with joy. <laughs> I'm glad I'm not a statistical anomaly. I'm sure it's more common than I think it is. I'm sure a whole lot of viewers' ears perked up and like... I had a crazy hoarder guy, too. Absolutely. So among the Genesis games that I got with that was the Sega six-pack, and I was able to replay those games with a larger worldview than a, like, four-year-old. Before we go further, I need to explain what the Sega six-pack is. You see, kids, it was a single cartridge that had Sonic the Hedgehog, it had Golden Axe, it had Streets of Rage, it had Revenge of Shinobi, which was my shit, it had Super Hang-On, which is a racing game with motorcycles, and it had Columns, which I've never played, but many of my friends lost many an hour to that game. Columns is like a shit Dr. Mario. <laughs> it's exactly what it is. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, they put on those five, like, kind of cool games, and they're like, I don't know, we need that alliteration, though. And Bejeweled isn't a thing yet. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> I had those, I had Altered Beast, 
which Altered Beast sucks, by the way. It has not aged well at all, <laughs> but I love it so much. Rise from your grave. Uh, <laughs> Welcome to your doom. Like it's the go- that's the good stuff. It's holistic. I still say they should have put the weird dragon on the front. That's mm-hmm. a much better thing than being a werewolf. With my job, I do have to do a lot of heavy lifting. And with my previous job, I also had to do heavy lifting. So my brother's a uh, not retired because he's still like in his 20s, but ex-pro strongman. And now he's a personal trainer with his own gym. So he was able to like teach me how to do things correctly. And I'm on my way to becoming an absolute unit. <laughs> and I was really hoping that it would end up that I just like touch a glowing orb and then just inflate like a balloon power up before i turn into a werewolf you'd be that third level before you turned into the monster (laughs) (laughs) and i turn into a werewolf and just like do a flying knee out the front window (laughs) so i had those and the big one was street fighter 2 champion edition hang on Capcom. Did you just pull it off a shelf? Yes, I did. Capcom Street (laughs) Fighter 2 apostrophe special champion edition. And it has M. Bison doing his double kick onto the Sega logo. Or official Sega seal of quality. I remember that one fondly. That was the, you guys can't have Street Fighter 2 Turbo. Here, have this instead. Yeah. Even better is the Sega Genesis controller had, the default controller had three buttons. Three buttons. They had a special version that had six. But when you have just those three buttons... You switch from light punch, medium punch, and heavy punch. You switch to your kicks by pressing the start button. It was the worst. It was the worst. By the way, I'm not a Sega kid. Oh. Not at all. Because, (laughs) as I said earlier, I was a toddler in the late 90s. Sega Mm -hmm. practically died in 1999. So all of the actual console wars were all said and done. The actual console wars being Sega and Nintendo were competing hardware to get the leverage on on the U.S. market. And it was actual, like, ride or die. Yeah, because the Sega Genesis had blast processing, and yeah. they do what Nintendo don't. <laughs> uh, blast processing is not even a thing. <laughs> nope. <laughs> I mean, Sega does what Nintendo don't. Is, that's the good 90s advertising. But I was not a Sega kid. I had an N64, because my brother got an N64 shortly after a PS1. And this is incredible to have... Well, I mean, like, we got it in, like, 99 or so... So, all right, it's not that incredible because at that point, the N64 was starting to be obsolete. Like, the Dreamcast mm-hmm. existed, the PS1 existed, and the N64 was dying out quick. But I had some great collect ups I had Mario, and I had Banjo-Kazooie, and I loved those games. Fun fact about me as a child, I was an absolute scaredy cat. I was scared of everything. I was terrified of Boo in Mario 64. Oh, no. Because, one, it's, there's a giant ghost with an angry face, and it's on the N64, so everything is blocky and angular, and they don't look right. And that's a very big piece of horror that people have kind of forgotten of. It needs to be ugly to be terrifying. Like, a lot of special effects look too good, and it's like, oh, that's just really good craftsmanship. Also, the other thing that people forget about Boo is that Boo was the weeping angel of its time. Yeah. In that it would only chase you when you weren't looking. That's so horrifying. Yeah. A combination between a weeping angel and he who walks behind from the Dresden Files. <laughs> and Boo could come through walls. Boo could get you wherever you are. Yeah, dude. And there's those giant eyeballs you had to run around in a circle to kill them. But that's like Lovecraft horror of just a giant eye looking at you. Not Lovecraft <laughs> or well. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Very different guy. Although depending on how it's presented physically, could yeah. be both. You're right. If the entire sky is an iris, then yeah, that's some Lovecraft-ass shit right there. And if the eye runs on electricity, then it becomes Orwellian. Yeah. The thing about the N64, though, is I didn't get an N64 until I went to university because in the way of a lot of parents, my sister asked for one for Christmas. 
And I said something to the effect of, whatever you get me will be fine. And so my mother got me one as well. And so in my dorm room, I had an N64, and I had, I think I only had like three games at first. I had GoldenEye, of course, mm-hmm. and I had Arrow Fighters Extreme, which was a plane game where you flew around in 3D and shot aliens. Nice. And I had Blast Corps, which was basically you had a bunch of vehicles and would motor around this like area and had to destroy a bunch of stuff in the right amount of time. Yeah, Blast Corps was really, really crazy at that time. There was no game where you could mow down all of the buildings and the bridges and everything. Grand Theft Auto didn't exist yet in the way we know it. It was just a top-down thing where you drive around. There was no yeah. There was no world geometry destruction. Grand Theft Auto also didn't have a time where you had to like power slide a dump truck in the <laughs> right way to wipe out four buildings at the same time to get the power ups. Then they introduced like midway through the game, you started to get like mech robots, including one that would like do a forward flip with giant feet and like smush buildings that way, and you had to like jetpack high enough before you did your flip to get the whole building in one go. And then I started to realize there was like a secret second level to the game where there were little tunnels where if you exited your mech as a little tiny human, you could run through the tunnel to find a car which would run down to the end of the thing which would get you something else. And at that point, I gave up the game. Because I'm like, there is no way I'm going back through this entire game that I have 92%ed to find the little human tunnels that I didn't know were there in every level to get that extra 8%. (laughs) The equivalent of the time of collecting flags in Assassin's Creed. (laughs) Collect them ups haven't gone anywhere. Nope. No. Sandbox games these days are a to-do list for good and for ill. Oh yeah, I don't know if anyone saw my tweet, but I've been playing Lord of the Rings Shadow of War for like six months. I replied to that tweet. Oh, you did too. We're going to talk about Yakuza later, don't worry. (laughs) Where I discovered that rather than being a couple missions from the end, which I thought I was, I was instead midway through part two of four, and I went, nope, I've had my fun with this game. Goodbye. (laughs) I'm going to go play Titanfall 2 for the first time. (laughs) Related to that, I have a catch-up list of games that I'm on, and recently I've been playing old games from 1995 to 2005, and just to refresh my memory for this... But anyways, back to the N64. Mario and Banjo. My brother had to play a good majority of Ocarina of Time. Because Ocarina of Mm -hmm. Time, also quite scary. I refused to go into the bottom of the well. That was (laughs) terrifying for me at that age. There's giant skulls that are also spiders. What the fuck, guys? (laughs) Believe it or not, games were still kind of pricey at that time. Even old Nintendo carts. So I still got a lot of my games out of the dollar bin, which is where you would find things like Blast Corp. One of the games I had was a flight sim called Buck Bumble. Oh, yes. Where it's a flight sim where you're all dogfighting, but everyone is robot insects in rural England, and it's so dope. <laughs> <laughs> yep. And it has this dumb hip-hop song for the main menu. It's such a treat. <laughs> Another game that I think, just even without video games... I would be a pretty progressive-minded feminist type, not just because of my single mom, not just because of my sexuality, but also I had a game called Battle Tanks. Oh, yes. Now, if you looked on like an advertisement for Battle Tanks or on the back of the box art, which I only recently saw a picture of, I had no idea it looked like that because I only ever had the cart. It was advertising itself like it was Duke Nukem, that you like rescue babes, post-apocalyptic thing. But you hit that start button and you see that opening title crawl, the plot of Battle Tanks. There is a virus that is killing only women. And in the game's own words, without the moral guidance of women, men have destroyed the world in a nuclear holocaust. (laughs) 
And I was uh, oh, so good. It's so good. It's, this was so before like the ESRP rating system existed, but I don't think anyone ever... <laughs> Like, I don't think anyone screened anything. They're like, oh, there's a gun on this. I guess we'll make it teen. I'm like, oh, there's a cartoon dog on this. I guess we'll make it E. It's like, hey, y'all, we're, we're remaking Battlezone for the Atari, but for the N64. Uh, <laughs> should we put in any kind of story? And then someone, like, cracked their knuckles and went, I got this. <laughs> <laughs> oh, dear. The N64 games I didn't have, one of my cousins had. And he was the cousin whose house we would go to for Thanksgiving. That's where I would play things like Goldeneye, the classic, the party game. We eventually got a Mario Party, which we were surprisingly civil about because there was three of us. <laughs> there was eventually a fourth when my mom found a new partner who already had a daughter who was my age. Uh, but for the most part, it was just the three of us. So we all ganged up on the computer character. And it was just kind of its own bonding experience. If, like, anytime you had to steal a star or steal coins, just, just you know, attack the computer. That's neutral ground. <laughs> and then my brother would always win. Anyways, because he would get the game star. I was going to say, did you have anything, like, you said you were the youngest sibling. Mm-hmm. This is a very delicate question to ask. Were you ever allowed time to learn to play the game or, like, let to win at any point? No. Nope. <laughs> that, uh, that never happened. The thing is, for all that this is meant to be a th- like a theory that this somehow happens, I have yet to speak to someone who was a younger sibling who was let to win anything. Nah, <laughs> Most that... of us just got squished. My dad eventually remarried and had two more kids who are, um, the older of the two is 10 years younger than me. I was 10 years old learning how to change diapers and take care of a baby. Just like, well, my dad went and did whatever he was doing. My dad is a great dad, by the way. I didn't mean that like he's a deadbeat. But, like, if he had to, like, go answer the phone or do whatever, he's like, take care of Sarah, here's how you do this and this and this and this. Between the three of us, he had three nannies. (laughs) That was three incompetent children. (laughs) But she turned out all right, and so did her little sister, who's two years younger than her. Okay. And now my uncle, who was around when I was in my toddler years, he just had his firstborn kid, and now anytime I go there, I just know how to handle it. I know how to de-escalate the situation with with the child, and I know how to overload sensory input to make them... Stop crying. No one gets tired of tissues being thrown in their face. It's a little wasteful, but it's good stuff. Absolutely. As I'm sure you know as a father. As a father. Indeed. <laughs> yep. Hey, I've had my kid lying on his back and dropped a pillow on him from about head height. Absolutely <laughs> loved it. Still do it. Kimiko's sister absolutely loves videos of him sitting up and me just clobbering him with a pillow mm-hmm. as he laughs his butt off. It's like, yeah, he loves it. It's like, that's me. No, it's not. If you don't mind me asking, was this true for Hiro, where their favorite people in the world was Uh you were bronze, the mother was silver, and the gold medal favorite person was Mirror Baby? (laughs) I would say that, except for, for a while, Mirror Baby was, enemy baby has appeared. (laughs) That's awesome. Hiro would be laughing and smiling and catch the eye and be like, motherfucker, he's back. You come in here. Hey, what are you doing? Get away from my dad! <laughs> a baby that fights its mirror image, I feel like, is the opening of, of a kung fu movie about a uh, prodigal child. <laughs> it's like, yes, we knew from an early age he was destined for fighting. <laughs> Ever since he knocked himself out, attempting to KO his mirror self. It's like some Dark Link shit. The only opponent he couldn't beat. <laughs> <laughs> what a weird conversation. It is. I am the Waffle Man. We will never have a straight through line of topic. But anyway, that's kind of it for the N64. I think we have room for maybe one more topic. And so did you want to keep talking about some oddball kind of bargain bin games? No. Or did you (laughs) want to just tell me about Yakuza and get it over with? What I really wanted to do, I was trying to get all the preamble out of the way. 
Because the big, big thing that is like 95% of it was the PS2. Okay. Because the PS2 had the largest game library ever because it was just super easy to develop for. It was just kind of the perfect period. So I can narrow it down to probably three or four games. There was things like Serious Sam, which is a super runaround arena shooter sort of thing, which I had also eventually gotten Painkiller, which is like a better version of Serious Sam. If you want to play Painkiller, why not try Painkiller Black, available on Steam, to relive those glory days of shooters with nothing but voiceless kill switch engaged tracks and shotguns that sound like God slamming his car door. <laughs> I think there was a new Serious Sam game a couple of years ago, too. I remember them talking about it on Destructoid. Oh, yes. Yeah. Serious Sam 3 came out, and it was surprisingly good. There you go. There was also Half-Life on the PS2, and Half-Life was a granddaddy landmark game of PC gaming, but it also came to the PS2, which is how I was able to play it, which is also very important for learning how games would blend gameplay and storytelling. It was one of the first games to do that. And it was also something of a meathead shooter where you have 30 guns, enemies are ridiculous, run around and don't die. The one time I attempted to play a Half-Life game, like a friend had left giving me his laptop, we were at work. And I'm like, oh, he's like, here, I've got a couple, a couple of games in there, why don't you play it? And I think I loaded up, was it Half-Life 2? And he's like, yeah, maybe don't start that from the beginning. He's like, I don't want to ruin your save, I'll just do it. And then there's like a gondola tour that takes like half an hour. Yeah, that was Half-Life 1. Oh, there you go, yeah. And that's one of the things that's an old movie hovering on a special effect that is bananas at the time, but nowadays is really quaint. Like, <laughs> it was made on the Quake engine, and they were like, look at all of this crazy skeletal animation. Look at all of this detailed world we have. There's colors other than brown. <laughs> so yeah, Half-Life does have a... A slow boil is one thing, but it really, really drags on in the beginning for like a solid 20 minutes. Also on the PS2 was... Now we're getting into a bit more middle school and high school years of me. There was God of War. Sure. Which was a very big game at the time, and it was one of those first violent games that I saw that I was like, Whoa! When there's blood everywhere, you're impaling hydras on ship masts. You're tearing off Medusa heads. It was not like anything I'd ever seen before. And I knew to play it when mom wasn't home. Because <laughs> my mom would often stash and hide away our game consoles when we were really young to make us go outside and make us read and not become couch potatoes. Which is very great that she did that, but she also still hates video games, even though... I made her play Street Fighter 2, and I saw a smile when she did a grab attack with Dalsum, and he was headbutting, shouting yoga over and over. <laughs> Can't fool me, Mom. <laughs> I know you secretly love Street Fighter. Absolutely. A special shout out to the mums that would play video games and try and make the characters jump by moving the controller up. <laughs> that was my mom. That is a very natural <laughs> learning process and nothing to be ashamed of. <laughs> yes. And then they built the Wii, and they got to go, ha! You see? This is what everyone wants it. So that's why the Wii sold gangbusters. Moms were able to control it. Exactly. There are so many more games to talk about on the PS2, but I'm going to scratch all of them because there's like wrestling games and skateboarding games that were big at the time. I was going to say, I, I do have my one wrestling game anecdote because I got mad into, initially it was uh, SmackDown 2, Know Your Role, with a friend of mine that got us back into wrestling, of all things, after a break. And then I would play one of the later SmackDown games with my little brother when I was on uh, university vacation. And I got to relive from the opposite position a power fantasy of an older sibling which is what my sister used to do to me because she would always beat me at things like Dr. Mario and if it looked like I was winning would do something dastardly so that I wouldn't actually get to do it and I was playing against my little brother Anthony and he was playing this wrestling game with me and he out of nowhere got enough for his finishing move and did it and pinned me and it was going one two and before I could say three I reached out with my toe and turned off the console um 
and I got to watch his face crumple, and then he just started yelling, and it was one of the most delicious feelings I have ever felt, and I know why my sister was a jerk to me. Now, I, I did say that we were pretty well behaved with the three of us. Yep. There was a non-zero amount of my brother <laughs> being a poor sport and, like, reaching forward and unplugging the controller and being able <laughs> Or that, oh, I'm just testing out the moves. I just want to make sure. And they just, like, hit you four times. It's yeah, like, what are you a, doing? Get a huge life lead on you. <laughs> and they fall into the defense. So you were saying? Yakuza was there for about six seconds. I played it, and I didn't get it. Like every child in America who played it, I hated it. Because it wasn't Grand Theft Auto, and I thought it was going to be Grand Theft Auto. And then recently, Yakuza 0. There's a way more important game to talk about before Yakuza. <laughs> Go for it. All right. But, so after uh, God of War, the game that is undoubtedly the most important game, because as I mentioned earlier, I was a scaredy cat. My sister made me watch Friday the 13th Part 1 when I was around seven or eight or so, and I swore off horror movies. If anybody said like, hey, that's a horror, I was running away. I hated it. Couldn't deal with it. I would like go to my own room and do my own thing eject myself from the situation. Anytime somebody said, let's watch this, I would immediately say, is it scary? One of my sister's friends brought a DVD box set of Friends, and she said, let's watch Friends. I asked, is it scary? <laughs> well, in a way, really. Yeah. But... <laughs> in a way, I wouldn't have been able to understand. <laughs> and then I played a game that I knew was a very, much like Half-Life, was a very notorious and very important game to play from a historical standpoint. And that was Silent Hill 2. Oh, boy. So... <laughs> I started playing it, and I got to the apartments over the course of about two days. And the apartments is the first level. Because before you go to the apartments, you have to walk around this foggy town. There are these monsters that don't move correctly. They have very twitchy, almost. They move like the Terminator in Terminator 1. There's this wrongness to them. They're like lifeless wind-up toy sort of things. Yeah, it's that Harryhausen skeletons kind of thing. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. Exactly that. Your attacks don't work. And you have a radio that plays this very eerie sound when monsters are near. And the combination between the sound design and soundtrack, compliments of one person having such a clear vision of what it wanted to be. It was a one-man sound team. Oh, wow. And it shows that it has that level of focus and goal to create this perfect horror experience if you allow yourself to get into the horror experience. I almost killed my dog with an elbow because he licked my arm on the chair. (laughs) When I first saw Pyramid Head on the other side of a gate. To be fair, not cool, dog. Yeah, come on, man. <laughs> I can just imagine. Like, pow! Ah! Oh, I'm so sorry. Luckily, I didn't, like, I screamed so loud. And with that, and there's another combination of a different thing in a movie that helped me get over horror. Because Silent Hill 2 scared me so much that horror stopped being scary. And I was able to start appreciating it. Wow, so I could crush the threshold. Yeah, exactly. I I just burst through. There was that. That allowed me to be like, okay, maybe I can do movies. Because in a game, it's your fault if you get killed. For the most part. (laughs) In a well-designed game, if you lose, it's because you didn't pay attention. You're at fault. The monsters are there to get you, the player, specifically. Games and books are very unique mediums of storytelling in that they require audience participation in some form or another. Right. Movies, TV... Nothing against them, but you can just, like, sit there and have them happen, and they're whatever. I love movies and things, but there's enough of that disconnect. And the first horror movie that I watched, and I started, um, it was uh, it was already on a little bit. My stepfather was watching it in the living room. I said, what are you watching? And he said, oh, this is just one of my movies as a kid. And there was this big, 
sound going on as a camera swayed around through the woods and burst into a cabin. And that's when I saw The Evil Dead from 1980. Wow. And I fell in love with Bruce Campbell's big dumb face. (laughs) Such a good face, though. It's so good. It's perfect. (laughs) I think I've said it's so good 300 times, but I don't care. And then I learned, and this was Evil Dead 1. I'm a statistical anomaly in that I was born in the 90s or later and saw Evil Dead 1 before Army of Darkness or Evil Dead 2. It's the one that was trying to be scary. And was scary. And what it taught me... (laughs) It taught me a very important lesson, is that scary can be funny, and funny can be scary. And it taught me that you can blend opposite genres in a seamless way. Oh, I wouldn't call Evil Dead seamless, but just for the sake of <laughs> sake of my point here, I could say that they were doing, like, the Three Stooges, but with blood. Yeah, yeah. That's Evil Dead. Like, even the first one where, you know, he's, like, going through the basement mm-hmm. and just, like, casually taps a pipe as he goes by. And that pipe leans over and dumps a literal gallon of blood in his face, covering yeah. his entire head. And it's it's not just blood. It's also this, like, black ichor that's just... Ugh. It's in that moment. Because that scene is tense. It mm. is tense as hell. Because you have already seen horrible shit in the movie by that point. Yeah. And you're going down into the basement. And everyone knows the worst shit lives in the basement. And then that happens. And I remember the first time I saw it, like I, like, burst out laughing and immediately covered my mouth. Because I was just like... It was a tension breaker completely. It was like, okay, this is still bad. This is still horrible. I would still be like in that position. I would still be horrified. But oh my God, it's so stupid. (laughs) Yeah. Thanks to Evil Dead and Silent Hill, I was able to pick up a game called Resident Evil 4. Ah, yes. Which I was told was the only one that I need to worry about. Resident Evil 4 is automatically one of the greatest games ever made because there's these things in video games called quick time events where a button will pop up and you press it and then an action outside of immediate gameplay would dictate. And if you fail it, you die. Or something. And when you see the X button and the word suplex next to it... (laughs) And not only are you suplexing someone, you're suplexing a presumably psychotic religious monk and their head explodes. There's a catharsis there that can't be beat. (laughs) That's all I have to say about Resident Evil 4. Oh my god. Capcom re-releases it every ten minutes. Go play it. It's delight. I was going to say, I think that's a great statement for life, you know? (laughs) Hey, when life shows you an X with the word suplex on it, you fucking press X, okay? (laughs) You can slowly open the doors, or you can press the open door button again, and he just does a big bang and kick the door off its hinges. (laughs) No door goes unkicked in the house of me. And I think that is a beautiful statement upon which to end the episode. So, Stephen, if people wanted to find your stuff on the internet, where would they go? I hang out on Twitter at EHSteveG. Sorry, I I have to. I have to say it. Hey, Steve! (laughs) I have been wanting to say Other that. potential math of you episodes for me is homestarrunner.com, but... Oh my god, I, I've so wanted to do a Homestar Runner one for so long, but hey. I don't know. I don't know if one episode could contain it. It may have to be like a 30-hour roundtable. <laughs> hey, name the time. I'm there, dog. Yeah, so twitter.com, E-H, Steve G. I don't tweet a whole lot of stuff, but, you know, come say hi. Pretty easygoing guy. If you have funeral business questions, I can answer them to the best of my ability. I am still very, very new into the business, but I can answer anything that uh, you might have that way. Or link you to someone who might know better. I think that's all you or I or anyone else could ever ask for. (laughs) All right, Steve, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. This has been a lot of fun. Oh, thank you.
Thank you very much to Stephen Gollin for his time. For Stephen's signature cocktail, he said he's not a big drinker, and when he does drink, it's either a rum and coke or a box wine. Quote, the only drinks I'd say I hate are beers you can see the sun through, so mix anything and everything to your heart's content. Well, Stephen, I think I can save you from rum and cokes and box wine, because this aggression will not stand, man. And so I present the After Fight Care. Now, this drink is interesting in that depending on the ingredients you choose, the preparation is going to be slightly different. I'll explain in a minute. For this drink, you're going to need one and a half ounces of Irish whiskey. I use Jameson Caskmates, which is a whiskey that's aged in stout beer barrels, and super nice. You're going to want one and a half ounces of dry vermouth. I use Dolan, but something like a Cinzano or a Martini will work just as well in a pinch. Then you want three quarters of an ounce of Curacao. Now, Curacao is a very particular liqueur that's made from a very particular citrus peel. So honestly, I'm going to use it as a catch-all term for your Triple Sec, your Grand Marnier, your Cointreau, any kind of liquor like that. So if you're using triple sec, I want you to combine all those ingredients in a rocks glass with ice and stir to combine, and then garnish with a twisted lemon peel. If you're using the much heavier Grand Marnier or Cointreau, then you're going to want to combine it in a shaker with ice and shake the bejesus out of it, and then strain it into a cocktail glass. The rocks version tends to come out a little bit sweeter, and the shaken version starts out sharper, but then gets kind of like lovely and buttery towards the end. Basically, you're treating Irish whiskey like it was gin. This allows the various strengths of Irish whiskey to come to the fore, whichever way you serve it. And remember, drinking is like fighting or sex. It's only fun if everyone's enjoying it, and then you learn something about yourself afterwards. Enjoy! Matthew is recorded in Leichhardt, New South Wales, Australia, and is written, hosted, and edited by yours truly, Lucas Brown. New episodes are released every Wednesday evening, and if you'd like to be a guest on the show, simply send an email to themathofyou at gmail.com and tell us what you'd like to talk about. You can follow the show on Twitter at themathofyou, and you can follow my wacky adventures at Lokified, L-O-K-I-F-I-E-D, on Twitter and Instagram. If you have a few dollars kicking around and would like to directly support the show, you can go to patreon.com slash lokified and pledge as little as a dollar a month, or you can pledge as much as you want. That would really impress me. Patrons get bonus cocktail recipes, physical mail, and I would really just appreciate it a whole bunch. Additionally, as of right now today, you can also leave me a tip. You can go to ko-fi.com slash lokified and buy me a cup of coffee. This is a one-time pledge in $3 increments, so you can buy, like, a nice coffee or, like, just an okay coffee. I would appreciate it either way. If you would like to support non-monetarily, you can go to Apple Podcasts in the country of your choice and leave a five-star rating. It helps people find the show. Or you can leave a review, and I'll read it out. Won't that be nice? And holy crap, you guys, we have a new iTunes review. 
on the Australian iTunes Store, user Jeeprime says five stars. The math of the math of you. Lucas Brown plus guest equals podcast gold. Isn't that nice? That was really nice. If you want to be just as cool as Jeeprime, you could leave a review as well. If you like the music I play on the show, there's a Spotify playlist for that. Go to bit.ly slash the math of you with capitals at the beginning of each word to find a Spotify playlist with all the music I've ever used going all the way back to episode one, including this song. It's Theme of Laura from the Silent Hill 2 soundtrack. I update the playlist as soon as the episode goes live, so make sure you subscribe and get the new music in your ears. Now next week I'm going to be trying something a little different. With all the good guests I've had on in the last little while, I've got like 10 bonus episodes just sitting on my hard drive waiting to be released or set loose or whatever the verb would be. And frankly, I need the space on this hard drive. So for a little while, I'm going to be alternating weeks with a new episode and a bonus episode. And I'm talking bonus episodes from past guests like JoJo Seams and Megan Bob and Joe Graham and Jay Edidin and Teeny Howard. There's a ton. And I'll tell you, it's good stuff. So next week it's a bonus and after that, a new guest. Join me, won't you? So you were saying um, you were going to scratch some topics. Yeah, I sure was. <laughs> <laughs> Man, I wonder what it's like to have a nice working brain. I'm, I bet that's awesome. I, I've heard it's nice. Mm-hmm.